you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of your co-hosts. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the other two. Hello. Hey. Hey, guys. Evan, who is on the program? This week, my guest was Wahini Vara, who is a long-form journalist and editor as well. She was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. She's been an editor at The New Yorker. Now she contributes to places like Wired and The New York Times Magazine. In fact, she has a big story out this week in Wired, which we discussed, which is about a kind of mysterious but enormous fast fashion company that sells clothes incredibly cheaply online. And it also happens that her debut novel is out this week. It's called The Immortal King Rao. Regular listeners will know that we don't often talk fiction on the show, but I wanted to have Wahini on the show to talk about her journalism for a long time. And then I discovered upon reading her novel that it really calls upon her reporting and her understanding of the intersection of technology and the humans who make it and use it. And so I was excited to get her thoughts on her kind of crossover between fiction and nonfiction. I'm glad you at least flagged our ban on novels. <laughs> we, we, we do maintain that. This one does overlap with her journalism. It also um, has a fantastic origin story, which I won't spoil, but I just, uh, I really like the idea that she wrote a novel essentially based on a challenge. Uh, the show is uh, brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make it. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Wahini Vara. Wahini, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you are about to have, within a 24-hour period, you are going to have a novel come out and a big magazine story come out, which are like, in my mind, a little bit related, which we can talk about, but also one of them you started maybe six months ago and the other one you started maybe a decade ago. And I'm just wondering, like, what is the feeling for you right now on the precipice of particularly the novel coming out. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because I had anticipated, like just imagining one day having a book come out that it would sort of like be the thing, like it would be all consuming and it would be all I'm talking about. But then also like, you know how it is when you have a magazine story coming out, you just like can't really rest or relax until that's in the world differently from, I think a fiction book where in some ways the stakes are lower, I think with the novel so funnily, I'm actually like thinking a lot more about the, the article than I am about the novel right now. Well, one of the reasons that I'm really excited to talk to you is actually the way that all of the many facts that you've gathered over your journalism career appear to inform the novel in this really incredible way. And also the way you have sort of passed between fiction, nonfiction, and also writing and editing, kind of moving back and forth between them. So. In order to understand that, I want to talk a little bit about how you got into all this. And I know that you grew up in partly in Canada and you grew up partly in Oklahoma. And I also know that you were a spelling bee champion because of this Harper story that you wrote about the history of the spelling bee. But tell me a little bit about your upbringing and kind of what interested you in writing if it started early. I was one of those kids 
who loved to read, who loved to make up stories. And so like as a kid, I always wanted to be a writer. And at some point in middle school, I have a distinct memory in middle school of like saying to my mom that I wanted to be a writer. And then she very practically was like, well, I think if you're going to be a writer, the one thing you can do where you'll actually make a living is be a journalist. So like maybe that's a thing to look into. And so I was like, all right, okay, I'll look into that. <laughs> um, and, you know, I got to high school and like worked on my high school paper. And um, and then I went to high school in like a suburb of Seattle. And the Seattle Times at the time had this program called the Urban Newspaper Workshop that they put on. It wasn't just the Seattle Times. I think it, they had partners. Um, but there was this program in Seattle where um, if you were like a high schooler of color, you could do this summer workshop with Seattle Times journalists who like taught you how to write newspaper stories and then you put out a newspaper at the end of it. And so I did this summer program and then the Seattle Times also had a teen newspaper at the time that would be like distributed at the local high schools. And so I got the job, this job as like an editorial assistant, you know, like just like, like I would like answer the phones and like, you know, organize the CDs that we got to review, you know. So I got this job at this thing called Mirror Newspaper in Seattle, like my senior year of high school. So that was like my, my very early entry point into journalism. Can we can we step back one second? I do want to talk about the spelling bee because you wrote this story for Harper's much later, obviously, about kind of the history of the National Spelling Bee and like with some kids who were who are in it at the time. It's a little profile of them. But then in the middle, you just drop in your own history with it, in which you mention that you finished third in the National Spelling Bee, which is like most people in their lives, they don't get to be third in the nation in, in anything. <laughs> yeah, that was the high point. It's been downhill since then. Um, I think like the way I remember it, my mom, like, really wanted me and my sister to like make it in the big leagues. Like now that we were in America, we had to like, you know, show that we could be successful at whatever. And so it was really my mom who was like, so your school's going to have a spelling bee. Like you're going to study all these words and win the school spelling bee. Like that's the plan. But I loved, I was like a real, was and am a real lover of like just language and etymology and words and so I, it became fun for me. And so like, I would, you know, come home from school in middle school and my mom would still be working and she would, um, she'd have this like tape recorder where she taped herself saying words and then spelling them. And so I would like press play on the tape recorder and hear the word, hit pause, spell it to myself and hit play again to like, see if I got it right. So that was like two years of my life in middle school. And then, you know, when you win the district spelling bee and the state spelling bee, and then you go off to Washington DC to go to the National spelling me, so I did that two years in a row. It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, did that give you a confidence in your sort of facility with words and your, I don't know, your abilities? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I was always a very nerdy kid, but like a confident kid. I was a kid who like felt like I could do things and be good at them while also like being very socially inept, you know, that kind of an annoying kid. But it was also just like, I loved like being in a scene with a bunch of like other kids who really loved language, you know, like that was really fun for me. And now as an adult, like as a journalist and fiction writer, like I feel like I continue to like really love talking about books and words and like sharing work with friends and like editing and working closely with a writer or being edited and work working closely with an editor, you know? So like, I feel like if there was anything where like that was the genesis, I feel like maybe it was more that that was the first time that I was like around other people who were really excited about this stuff the way I am. I really relate to that. I mean, I feel like when I got into a, a newsroom kind of environment or a magazine type environment, I kind of thought, these are my people. Was the Seattle Times kind of like what hooked you into doing it? Or did that come later? In high school, I did the Seattle Times thing because like it seemed like a cool, fun thing to do. And I got to like get a press pass to go to music shows, like write reviews of bands that I liked at the time. You know, I just was like, this is a fun thing to be doing right now. And then I got to college and I majored in international relations. And I think I thought professionally, like, you know, I should go work for the UN or something. I don't know. Like I had this idea that like there was some profession that you had that was different from like the stuff I was doing for fun. But then I was like spending all my time at the college paper. And then when I wasn't at the college paper, I was like, 
minoring in creative writing and taking creative writing classes and like talking about stories with my friends. That was just like, this is what I feel like doing right now. And then I just kept doing it and doing it, you know, and like did summer internships and then graduated and did another internship and that turned into a job. And then next thing I knew I was a journalist and a writer, you know. Yeah. At the Wall Street Journal, no less. Yeah, that's right. You read a lot of stories in the Wall Street Journal as a staff writer and you're covering California. And that whole time, is there a part of you that wants to be a novelist? Like, when do you are, is it a situation in which you're practically doing journalism because you're like, this is the way I can make a living, but I'd really love to be as a novelist? Or are these things really like both held in your head at the same time as kind of equals? They were back then and then also continue to be sort of held in my head as equals. Um, so in college, I was like, like I said, working at the Stanford Daily, but then I was also minoring in creative writing. And I went I went to Stanford and there's this fellowship program there called the Stegner Fellowship Program, like for creative writing. It's like a postgraduate program for creative writers. And so like people who go through that program end up teaching undergrads how to be writers, you know, teaching creative writing classes. So I had this group of friends who later went on to be really successful novelists um, and short story writers like um, Karan Mahajan and Jenny Zhang and Tony Tula Tamudi and Alice Kim and Anthony Hahn, Anna North. Um, We just all randomly were in college at the same time together. And that was my writing group. And we just kept that writing group going. And so we were always like writing stories and sharing our work. And at the same time, I was working at the Wall Street Journal. And so... Both of those parts of my life were sort of like active from the very beginning. Um, I graduated from college, got an internship at the Wall Street Journal, and then that immediately turned into a job. My first reporting job there was covering tech companies. And then I did that for a few years. And there was a point where I was like, "Ah, I really want to spend more time on my fiction. I'm not getting a chance to. And so I took a leave of absence and I went to graduate school to study creative writing and then came back to the Wall Street Journal. So I feel like it's always been back and forth doing the two either simultaneously or like years at a time. So you worked at the Journal and then you worked at the New Yorker as a kind of editor and writer. You wrote a lot of pieces, but I think your title was business editor. It seems like at some point you kind of like decided to go a more independent route than kind of like continuing to climb through publications. And I'm wondering what led to that choice. Yeah. Um, In 2013, I went to The New Yorker to help launch the business section of their website. And then that job transitioned into more of a writing job because we had to leave New York. And I did that for a year. And I was writing for the website. So you know how those jobs are. Like I was writing two or three times a week, like newyorker.com web pieces. So they would be like 1,500 words sometimes. And my ambition was always in my career to like write long form journalism. And I didn't know how to do it. Like I didn't really know how to get there. But then after working at the New Yorker, I sort of like started to have some models. I was like, okay, this is how people do it. And I met people who did that kind of work. And so after a year of writing for the New Yorker's website, it was 2015 and we had just had a kid and we were moving to Fort Collins, Colorado, which is where we live now because my husband, also a writer, got a teaching job here. And so to be honest with you, it was like, that was the first time we were moving. We had lived in San Francisco before that and San Francisco and New York kind of back and forth. And so it was the first time we were moving somewhere that was like affordable enough that I could take a risk on and freelance. Like I could, it was, it was okay to like leave behind my steady job and, you know, be on my husband's health insurance and try to try to make a living just freelancing in the first year. I think it was like more than a 50% pay cut, you know, from the kind of like full-time jobs I'd previously had. And then it built up after that, but like, I wouldn't have been able to take that pay cut living in a bigger city. So again, it was like one of these things where it was something I always wanted to do. And then the moment came where like everything sort of fell into place for it to facilitate that. And was there a story that you did that sort of felt like, you were turning the corner to doing the thing that you wanted to do? Was there one a piece where you kind of felt like, this is it, this is actually what I imagined I wanted to be doing? Yeah, my first magazine story was an assignment from California Sunday. Um, and it was the 
um, dearly departed California Sunday. It was. Um, <laughs> I feel like this. This is like the the fourth or fifth time I've spoken to someone where someone says California Sunday, and then we both sort of say, "Rest in peace." You know, we have a moment of of sadness, right? right. And just like so, so listeners know, like both of our faces <laughs> kind of fell right when I said California Sunday. Great magazine. So that magazine was just getting started around that time, and so I think they were. I mean, they always sort of like took risks on emerging writers, I think. And I think especially then when they were first starting, they were they were, you know, especially interested in taking risks on, on newer writers. I had all this experience working for a newspaper and I had been covering California government. And so I reached out to the magazine and was like, I really am interested in profiling the first lady of California, Jerry Brown's wife and Gus Brown, because she's very influential, but there has never been a magazine profile of her. And the editor I talked to, interestingly, was like, oh, that's funny. We were thinking about reaching out to you because we had the same idea. It was really weird. So that was my first magazine story. And I was pregnant at the time. And at first, she wouldn't talk to me. Like, she's a very private person. So, like, at first, she wasn't responding to my interview requests or anything. So I was, like, reporting around it and reporting around her and reporting around her, talking to all kinds of other people, people who knew her. Like I was pretty far into my pregnancy when, you know, I went to her office the way we do and was like, all right, well, here's, here's what I've got. Like, does she want to talk to me about any of it? And finally they let me have like a half hour with her. So I went to Sacramento and spent a half hour with her. And it was like, just like this really dense half hour where it was like both my first time doing this kind of story where like you need the material to like film any pages. Right. And I had only a half hour and I found it to be like just a really cool, interesting challenge, I think. And then the story was due. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, the story was due and like I gave birth and, and like I was, I think I was in edits or something. It was like right at the moment where like the story needed to be finished. And so I was like finishing up the story while I was like in that early part of labor where it's still fine. <laughs> um, and then I had my baby and it was like his first couple of weeks and the story was about to run. So I was like dealing with the final edits. And weirdly, I remember just like being excited about the whole process. I think like maybe especially for mom, a mother, but I think for all parents, like you sort of like you have your first kid and you're like, oh no, how's this going to change my career? And it felt very exhilarating to be like, I had a kid and you know, like he was born two weeks ago or whatever it was and I'm doing edits. Like now, seven years later, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, it would have been fine to take a little more time. Like, they could have pushed it to a later issue. But like, I felt very excited that I could be like doing it all. So then you sort of settle into freelancing. But you've also, you've you've kept up editing. And like, it seems like you'll go edit some for like the Times Magazine or uh, edit features. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think that gives you as a as a writer? Oh, I, yeah. I, well, number one, I love editing, like in its own right. Like if it feels to me like a sort of special art. And I think when you're doing the job well, you're kind of like trying to mind meld with the journalists themselves and like try to understand what they're trying to get at and like make sure you're staying true to your, their language and not inserting your own. And so for me, doing all that then helps me when I'm doing my own journalism, like try to also play that role for myself. So like, I do my whole draft and, and I think we all do this as writers. I'm not suggesting I'm the only one, but like I can do the whole draft and then kind of put my editor hat on and be like, all right, like if I was seeing this fresh, what would I see as the gaps? You know, like what can I anticipate the editor is going to say? And it's usually like a place where the reporting isn't solid enough yet. And instead of being like waiting for the editor to just tell me that I can just tell myself that and go back and do more. I think editing makes me better able to identify some of those things. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? Uh, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When did you start thinking about the novel? I'm interested in the germ of the idea for the novel. And I don't know, it might help to just describe a little bit about what the novel's about so people can have like a general awareness of it. Yeah, okay. So the novel is called The Immortal King Rao. And one of the main characters, the, the character at the center of the book is named King Rao. And he is a tech CEO who in this sort of dystopian future has engineered a kind of global world government takeover where his corporation and other corporations rule the world. The novel is narrated by his daughter, who, when the novel opens, has been imprisoned and she's suspected of having something to do with the death of her father. Oh, I skipped that part. Her her, her dad has been found dead. She's suspected to have something to do with it. And, um, and she needs to sort of like tell the story of his life and her life as a way of sort of unraveling what's going on and trying to earn her her freedom, essentially. So part of why I'm interested in where the germ of the idea kind of started is that there's a science fiction part of the novel, but there's also a part that's really based in the reality that we're immersed in right now, like what's happened with social media, the way the tech industry has developed. But I'm also interested in like when you first started seeing the elements that would go into the book. And by that, I mean the kind of dystopia that the earth becomes as social capital takes over as a as a means for people to like make a living. Yeah. So it's totally related to my work as a journalist. So I graduated Stanford in 2004, which was like the year Google went public. It was like the year Facebook was founded and Stanford was one of the first campuses where it was founded. So like I graduate college and all these kids I went to school with are like going to work for Google and then Google goes public and they make a gazillion dollars or going to work for Facebook. And so like in my sort of social world, like that was very much part of the zeitgeist. And then I went to work for the Wall Street Journal when I my internship turned into a job. My first beat was enterprise technology, which means like like companies that make technology for other companies. So like Oracle was the biggest one, which was founded in the 1970s by Larry Ellison. So I was like going and writing about Oracle and like would sometimes go to like, you know, weird parties or gatherings or dinners where like Larry Ellison would be there and he'd be this sort of like both larger than life figure, but also like very, he had like this real physical presence there because he was like there in the room talking to people. And at the same time, nobody at the Wall Street Journal was covering Facebook as a beat at the time because it was so small and it was a private company. And at the Wall Street Journal, usually beats, at least back then, were for public companies. And so I was like the 22-year-old in the office. So sort of by default, like I ended up writing about Facebook too. So here I was like studying Larry Ellison, reading books about him from like when he started the company in the 70s, like trying to be in front of him as much as possible and talk to him and talk to people like him, while also starting to write about Facebook and like spending a little bit of time with not to overstate it with either of these people, but like spending a little bit of time with Mark Zuckerberg, right. And like writing about Zuckerberg and the people around him. And I was really struck by like the apparent distance between those two people, right. Like Mark Zuckerberg, who was in his twenties and Larry Ellison, who I think was in his sixties at the time. But then also like the way you could kind of imagine Zuckerberg, like eventually being a Larry Ellison, Because I think it was clear to us even then in those early days of Facebook that this was like going to be a significant company. And then also, I think all of us covering tech at the time could like see what these companies were doing with like things like privacy and security and like just like they were able to get so many people to use their platforms so quickly. You could kind of like imagine it wasn't too much of an imaginative leap to be like, well, what might this look like, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years in the future? But there was no like journalistically responsible way to write about that, I don't think, because it wasn't happening yet. It was like something you could kind of picture happening. And so when I went to grad school, I really wanted to spend more time on my fiction. But I think also I was just like, ugh, like I can't figure out the right way to write about some of this stuff that I'm interested in writing about. 
And I went to grad school and wasn't like, I'm going to grad school to write a novel about a tech dystopia. You know, right? I, I didn't really didn't think a CEO would be my character. Like, I would have been horrified then to know that like that's this is the book that would have resulted from my time as a creative writer. But it was like kind of floating around in my mind. And then in my first year of grad school, I was traveling with my dad in South America and we were like on this train and he was teasing me about working only on short stories. He was like, why don't you write a novel? Nobody reads short stories anymore. You've got novels where it's at. And so I was like, all right, dad, like give me an idea for the novel. And he gave me some really dumb ideas. And then like his third idea was, why don't you write about my family coconut grove where I grew up, which um, is a real coconut grove in South India. Um, in a tiny, tiny village. And I had visited it growing up and it was like a big place in like my sort of like family's imagination. We still have family members living there. It's still our family, Coconut Grove. So then I was like, well, that's a good idea. And then so that's like all these things, like my dad's family story and the story of tech all came together at that time. And did you find yourself, because you you spent a long time in the novel, were there ideas where reality just kind of like overtook it? Like there's this idea that I I just found so amazing in the book. Like that's part of the dystopian nature of it is this, this like social credit situation where like you basically have to be on social media. You have to give all your private information. Otherwise, you're just you're literally not a citizen. Like that's part of being a citizen of the world, which is essentially run by corporations in this world. Did things come along like cloud scores and influencer culture where you thought like, oh, well, now this isn't even, this isn't near future dystopia. Like things are happening now that are intersecting with the novel that I'm trying to write. Totally. Yeah. So the the example that comes most to mind for me is that in the novel, there's like this technology that allows people to read one another's minds, like that allows like a sort of tapping into other people's consciousnesses. And the reason I came up with that in the book is that my dad had said, you should write my family story. And then I was like, well, what do I know about like what it's like to be a boy growing up in a tiny village in the 1950s in India? Like, it, it, I'm Indian American. I'm Dalit American, which is the community that my dad's from and King Rao in the novel is from. But like, like I, I know nothing about that stuff. And at the time I was watching that Battlestar Galactica, my husband and I were watching that Battlestar Galactica reboot, you know, from like the mid 2000s. I don't know if you ever watched it, but so there's a thing like that. There's this technology in that show where that like allows like a digital sharing of consciousness. And so I was like, oh, well, if I use something like that, then I can write about this character King Rao's childhood on a coconut grove in India without like pretending as a writer or a narrative voice to like be King Rao. You know what I mean? So it was like this craft. It was like this writing device. I was like, oh, okay, that's what's going to let me write about this place without like having to like have that kind of lived experience myself. And so that was like a technology in the center of the book. And then after like years after I started writing the book is when like Elon Musk started his company Neuralink. That is this kind of company that's like trying to figure out how to connect people's minds to the internet. And there are all these like university projects that cropped up. And so I think like what I was sort of like imagining into existence originally, like ended up happening in the real world. And then I think partly because I'm a journalist, I would then like just go and read those research papers or like read articles about those companies and like throw that in the book too. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's also, there's a lot of Silicon Valley history that's sort of woven into the book. I feel like there's a little bit of the Apple origin story mixed with like a little bit of the Microsoft origin story with like uh, homebrew computing. And I'm wondering, is that stuff that you knew from reporting or did you go kind of like research all that? Yeah. So I learned about all that stuff when I was like this cub reporter writing about Oracle because I wanted to know about like what Silicon Valley was like at the time that Oracle got started. Um, you know, I was like, and that was my first reporting job. So I was like, so ambitious and dogged and would just like read everything about that time, you know, so I could like, say something to Larry Ellison the one time I interviewed him about like that thing he did in 1978 or whatever, you know? And then I went back and reread all of that when I was working on the book. I think it's sort of intentional that like there are those crumbs in there that like feel really similar to the histories of the companies we know, because I wanted people to sort of like see how it might relate to like the actual world we live in. 
And when you say working on the book, like when were you literally working on the book? What kind of time did you carve out to be writing a novel while also working, you know, doing your journalism? Yes. Okay. So I started the book in 2009, the very beginning of 2009. And then I graduated from grad school in the summer of 2010. So like during that time I was working almost exclusively on this book and on stories. And then I went back to the wall street journal. And at that point I was writing like every weekend I would try to write. And then like evenings I would write and then my friend, the the journalist, Connor Doherty, was working on a book at that time and said he will like would be on his commute and like write in Google Docs or I think in notes or something on his phone. So I started doing that, just like grabbing the time I had. And then we had a kid and I was freelancing. And in some ways, like that made it easier. And in some ways, it made it harder to write. Like when you're freelancing, there can be periods of like a month or two at a time where you're not working on anything. And I could work on the book if I had figured out my finances properly to cover me during that time. But then there would also be times when like I was working 80 hours a week because I was closing a story and then also had this kid. And so like there were fully full years that went by that I wasn't working on the book. Did it all feel like it was progressing? Is it like a two steps forward, one step back or one step forward, two steps back? Like over that long a period of time, how do you sort of maintain the idea that eventually I, you will land this? I think it's a lot like a piece of journalism, like a magazine story, actually, where you work on it for so long. With a magazine story, it might be like six months or a year or two or something, if it's something that took you a long time. With this, it was 13 years for me. But like, the sort of emotional arc felt similar where there were these periods of like despair and like a sense that like this wasn't going anywhere. And then these periods where I was like, like, I'm a genius. This is going to be the best book ever written, right? <laughs> like you go back and forth as we do with our journalism. But then like with every draft of it, I always felt like, all right, this is better than the last draft at least. Like, I don't know what the next one is going to look like, but this is definitely an improvement. And I feel like that's what kept me feeling like I was at least moving in the right direction. And I, you know, and I feel like that's sort of what we do in journalism too, right? Like with the magazine story, like you just like keep working on it and working on it and then you get frustrated. And then the thing that keeps you moving is you're like, all right, well, at least I have more now. Like I talked to like this one additional guy who was able to tell me something more than I knew three weeks ago. So I'm getting somewhere. But then it feels like one difference is when I'm stuck writing journalism, I can always just make another call. I can try to report my way out of it, you know? But if you're stuck writing fiction, you're stuck. Like, how do you get unstuck? I mean, the benefit of fiction, though, is like with journalism, like you can always make a call, but like you are partly dependent on those people, right? Like on your sources to like tell you what you need to know or like point you to somebody else who can tell you. Like you're dependent on other people for like to do a large part of the work that we do. And in fiction, you can just make it up. So there's that. But on the other hand, with nonfiction, the existing material is there in the real world and you just have to find it and put it on the page. Whereas with fiction, there's a whole universe of endless possibilities and you have to choose one and then it might not work and then you have to choose another one and then you might, it might not work and you have to try again and then like it's 13 years later. <laughs> so how did you know when you were finished? Oh my God. I, um, honestly, it doesn't feel any different in some ways from how it felt like a year ago or five years ago, craft wise, like 13 years. I think I, when I sold it, it was like 11 years and a decade just like felt like a really long time. Like I was like, this is getting ridiculous. I need to move on. You know, like I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out next time. I have a friend who's a painter and I listened to her. Her name's Haley Hasler. She's a really good painter. And she gave this talk. She does self-portraits and she, somebody asked her like what she's trying to accomplish. And she was like, in every painting, I sit down and I'm like, I'm just going to get it right this time. Like I'm going to make, like my face is going to look like the way my actual face looks. And like the emotion I'm trying to get across is going to be in that painting. And then I finish it and I look at it and I'm like, I didn't really get it right that time. Well, I better start a new one, you know? And I feel like, I feel like that's how it is for us too, as writers, whether it's like a, a magazine article or a book or whatever, you know, at some point you just have to be like, okay, I'm going to try this again. And do you feel like, so looking, looking through some of your magazine stories and the one that's, that'll be out next week, a lot of the ideas, they do seem to 
jibe with some of the themes from the book. Not necessarily that you view all tech as dystopian or anything like that, but that you are you're looking at the sort of same issues through your journalism. I'm thinking about this piece you did about kind of like oral history of globalization through the eyes of different people who are experiencing it, some sometimes in very difficult ways. And this story that's coming out in Wired, which is like, I wouldn't say it's quite dystopian, but it's like, it's a strange world. Do you feel like you, you were picking stories that would like inform and be in conversation with your fiction or that's just happenstance and that's what you're interested in? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. Um, I think I am really interested in that subject matter. I um, I really admire Rachel Aviv for like the way she will take one narrative and use it to like show the ways in which the system that we've all together sort of like constructed to deal with X is sort of like binding individuals into like certain bad choices, right? I also am interested in the ways in which like we've like set up these systems that like lead X and Y to take place. And I think like that's sort of like what I, some of the subject matter I was interested in dealing with in my book too. Um, but also honestly, like in, I was, I was working on this book several years ago and felt like I like didn't know enough about AI. And so I pitched a story to Fortune about this AI company in Canada, Element AI. And like 50% of the reason I pitched that story is that I was like, all right, cool. I'll go, I'll go like report on this story, talk to a bunch of people, have an excuse to talk to, you know, to scientists and researchers and people who know all kinds of people who know a bit about AI and ask them all my questions. And then that can inform the novel too. You know, like, so like, I feel like in some ways, some of my reporting decisions were actually like very practically chosen to, to serve this very, this specific book. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. So this Wired story, how did you first come across this company? And this company, according to the story, is pronounced Shein. Is that correct? That's right. So I first started seeing the name Shein like on my social media feeds. I'm sure like all of us, anybody who who's listening to this, like knows those ads that I am talking about where you're like on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and they'll be like a company like a fashion brand with a name you've never really heard of that almost sounds like AI generated, like these two like words smashed together. Like one of them's like cup. She, I think is the name of one of them or she in. Um, and, but then like you click on the link and you're like, well, this looks like a, you know, like this has all the markers of like being a legitimate clothing website. Right. Um, and so I think that was like my first encounter with them. And then later on, I was just sort of like poking around for like what to write next and realized that this company had like raised a significant amount of funding. They just raised their their most recent round of funding was enormous. But even when I was starting to look into the company last year, they'd raised a good amount. And I was sort of like, what's a what's a fast fashion company doing raising this kind of like Silicon Valley money? Like it was just like interesting to me. And then I started Googling the company. And very little came up. Like um, there's been, there have been some stories in the press about the company, but like the company themselves, like there are all these things that you would, that you just expect to see like a, like a corporate website with like pictures of the executives and little bios of them that this company didn't have. And it seemed like very strange to me that it was so mysterious for a company that like was doing all the things that other companies with much bigger profiles were doing. Yeah. I mean, the, it's a huge company with a seemingly mysterious 
founder. And so how did you sort of go about trying to unravel what's happening there? One of the first things I did was I was like, I started watching these like influencer videos about the company because to the extent that the company had like a public image, it was influencers who would do these things, make these things called Shein hauls, be like hashtag Shein haul. And there are these videos where on like these TikToks or YouTube videos, there's this music in the background, like those videos have. And then it's somebody like either like ripping open a box or like tearing open a plastic bag and like dumping it all out. And then there are these like smaller little baby plastic bags (laughs) inside. And then they would open those plastic bags, you know, and then it would be like a shot of Shein's website and then like a shot of the influencer wearing it. And then Shein's website and the influencer. And every time you saw the page from Shein's website, it would be like, a dress for $4.99 or, you know, a sweater for $7.99, like just these really surprisingly low numbers. And then the whole vibe was like, look how impressive this is. Like, this is so cheap and I look so great in this. And so I went and hung out with an influencer in Fort Collins where I live, who was really, really charming and interesting and showed me what it was like to film one of these hauls. But then from there, I tried to like peel back the layers of the onion and like, talk to people who work or have worked at the company in in all these years of its existence. Um, the the sort of like earliest version of this company existed in in 2008. So I sort of like went back to 2008 and tried to talk to people from from then until now. So ultimately, did you feel like you got close enough to the company to understand what was happening? I did. I mean, I always, I think we all always as, as journalists feel like we could get closer and closer. Um, but I do, you know, I talk to enough people that I do feel like I have an understanding of like what this company set out to do at the beginning and what it's doing now, how it's evolving. As with any company, like the the perspectives that you get depend on 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 who you're speaking with, but I do feel like I was able to like understand more about the the company and hopefully readers will be able to understand more about the company than like the sort of like super official amount of information that was that was previously available. And you have another story that I really want to talk about. It's probably my favorite one that you've done, which is this piece you did for The Believer last year, which is also at the intersection of technology and humanity. And maybe you could just describe how this story came about. It's called Ghosts. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. I actually, this that's another creative thing that came out of my journalism in a way, because I had written a profile a couple of years earlier of Sam Altman. Uh, he ran Y Combinator at the time, and then also is one of the people who's really involved with OpenAI, which is the entity that built GPT-3, which is this text completion algorithm that was involved with the writing of the essay you're talking about. So in profiling Sam, I, I spoke to him about OpenAI and like learned a bit about how that organization works and learned about GPT-3. And then just like kept out of, just out of interest and curiosity, like reading a little bit about OpenAI and GPT-3 whenever there were stories about it in the press. Like there would be these articles just like about how GPT-3, this algorithm was like becoming better and better at writing in a way that seemed human. And so you'd see people like um, like people with a kind of like software background or whatever play around with it and post something on their blog, but like not like you. I hadn't seen much from the creative writing world, and so I texted Sam and was like, "Hey, can I play around with GPT three? I you know I do. I'm a creative writer too, and just like interested in seeing what might come of it. I don't know what it's going to be, but I just like thought I might try it out. And so he connected me with you know the communications person and that person gave me access to GPT-3. And at first I was like trying to write fiction. Like I would just like put random prompts in there and just like see what came out and was just sort of like playing around with it to see what would emerge, kind of like understand how it worked. Essentially like the, the purpose it serves is like it's giving us words when like, we don't know what the right words are, right. To put on the page, like we can write some words on the page and the way this algorithm works is it like completes the text. So I might write like, you know, I am talking to, and then I hit enter and then it would say Evan or whatever. And so I just started thinking like, just for myself on a personal level about like the things that I've had a really hard time writing. 
And for me, the thing at the top of the list probably is the death of my sister. When we were both young, she died of cancer. And like I've sort of like written related stuff in my fiction, but is not something I'd ever dealt with non-fictionally. And it's something I not only have a hard time writing about, but like have a hard time talking about. Like I often just like feel like I'm at a loss for language in general. And so I started like seeing what it would be like to like try to ask GPT-3 to tell me what the words might be that I could use to talk about this. And I started doing it. And then in the process of like testing this out and testing it out more, like it became this kind of interactive, I don't know, like dance or dialogue between me and the AI that in the end, like for me as a writer, like felt pretty affecting. As you were actually doing it, did you have an emotional response to what the AI was telling you the story was? Because sometimes it's also like absurd and funny. Like it goes in like totally random, weird directions all the time because it's trying to make it up. And my reaction sometimes was to laugh at things that said like, in 1978, I ran across America or things that it throws in there. But I'm wondering what your like emotional reaction was to seeing it complete your story. Yeah, no, same here. So like the very first one, um, so when I was having this back and forth, like the way, like you said, the the way I started was I like started by giving it just a little bit of material to work with. So I said something in like one sentence about the death of my sister. And then the way it completed it was to talk about like how my sister then recovered and everything was great. And like we were on the lacrosse team together or whatever. And I think the last sentence of something of that one was something like, she's doing great now. And that was really upsetting to read, you know, because I had gone into this being like, oh, this is going to help me write about the thing that I'm having a hard time writing about. And then it got it completely wrong. So I almost like felt hurt or something by it. Right. I was like, oh, God, like, that's not right. But then as I gave it more, the way GPT-3 works is like, if you give it more, it sort of like gives you more in response. So as I gave it more material to work with, it would like return with material that like felt much truer to reality. And especially toward the end and like the second to last iteration, the way the essay works is that there's like nine different sections. And in each of those sections, I'm telling it more. So in the second to last one, it sort of like goes off on this sort of like algorithmic loop where it starts like sort of just saying over and over, I'm a ghost and I'm in a spaceship and I'm hurtling through the universe and I'm a ghost and I'm in a spaceship and I'm hurtling through the universe. And if I'd let it go on, like it would have just kept doing that forever, I think. And I, you know, I stopped it at a certain point. It, it was like partly like a sort of glitch in the way the algorithm worked that it sort of like ended up on this loop. But it also sort of like echoed the way that grief can feel, you know, where like you do feel like a little like you're untethered and you're floating around and you can't get your bearings and you're in this sort of like mental spiral of not being able to think about anything other than the thing, you know, the the grief and the person you lost. And so it, for me in the whole essay, like that moment where like the algorithm spins out is like feels like the truest moment. Like it felt very emotionally true to me. And it was in reading that when I was like, oh, I got it. Like it did the thing that I was trying to get it to do, weirdly. And it has that effect when you read it. And I I just, I love that story. It was one of my favorite stories of the last uh, few years. Absolutely. So, but it, but it also makes me wonder just between that and your book, like, are you an optimist about technology when you, when you approach it in journalism and fiction? Yeah. So I, um, I find technology itself, like technology as technology, to be often like pretty fascinating and exciting. And with GPT-3, like with this essay, I really was trying to like just engage with it in a creative way. I wasn't thinking about like all the baggage, right? Like that, you know, my husband was sort of like watching me play with this and he would just like, he's more cynical than I am. And he would just be like, oh, are you sure this is a good idea? Like, what does it mean for the world if like you write an essay with the help of AI and because of the AI, it's really good? Like, what does that mean? Doesn't that like run counter to like our sort of like philosophical goal or a social goal we might have, right? And 
I was like, yeah, totally. And also this is just really interesting to me. And like, I'm having like, this is really like moving and emotionally engaging for me. So I'm just going to do it. The way I think about it is like, it feels to me like all of the potential problems related to technology are human problems. Like it's like, our rapaciousness and our desire as like a species um, and a species that sort of like built these systems, right. That, that kind of like replicate like some of our worst instincts as a species that have like, we've, we've created technology and then we've sort of like harnessed it for evil, you know? Um, And so to the extent that I'm interested in writing about the quote unquote dangerousness of technology or like, the 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 dystopian elements of technology for me that feels like very interlinked with human behavior and i'm more interested in like just like the the stuff we're doing as individuals and as people who have created these systems whereas i feel like in a world in which technology could be untethered from those kinds of goals there is something really exciting about like these developments like these changes in the way we can engage with the world and the things that we're able to do so you're about to be probably out talking about your novel a good bit, I would imagine. Do you have a sense of whether you want to keep kind of treading these lines between fiction and nonfiction? Would you head to one side permanently if you could? It, both are so frustrating, right? Like, I just feel like the the nice thing about having both is like, you finish a vexing magazine article and then I can be like, oh, that was horrible. Like, I'm just going to write fiction from now on. And then I turn to my fiction and I'm like, oh, God, like, I have no idea what to do next in this plot or with this character. Like, I'm just going to go write an article. So I like the two serve like a really useful purpose in relation to each other. Like, I just get so annoyed with each of them and then also love each of them the way we do. Right. We'll enjoy having both of them out at the same time. I feel like that's a special moment to celebrate. And thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Wahini Vara's first novel, The Immortal King Rao, is out everywhere now, hopefully this enticed you to go pick it up. I loved it myself. My fellow co-hosts on the show are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. The editor this week is Jackie Sajiko. Our intern is Noel Matier. And thanks as always to Vox, our partners. Thank you, our listeners. And we'll see you next week. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.